Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Hello, Jeff. On today's show, we'll talk about David Stearns, but first, Buck. At the end of June, I recorded a special commentary for this show entitled Fire Buck Showalter. Over the course of those eight minutes, I laid out the case as to why I felt that Buck should be fired. After Buck was fired, I listened to that show, and all of the reasons are still valid. Therefore, I did not object to what the Mets did. Buck deserved to go. I don't want to repeat those reasons because he's gone, and it feels like I'd be piling on. But they should have done it in June. When I recorded that special commentary, the Mets had a 15% chance of making the playoffs. So what I said in late June was that if the Mets don't make the playoffs, Buck's going to be fired anyway, so you might as well fire him now, and maybe a new manager would change the season. Well, they gave him another month, things didn't get better, the Mets didn't make the playoffs, and Buck was fired. The time to do this was in June. Nevertheless, I don't object to what they did on Sunday. It had to happen, especially with a new person in charge. However, that doesn't mean that I don't feel bad for Buck. When Buck announced his dismissal, I felt badly. We've talked about empathy on this show, and I feel bad for Buck in a way I didn't for his two predecessors. This was likely Buck's last chance to make the World Series. Remember how happy we were for Terry when he made the World Series for the first time in 2015? Buck has never made the World Series, and we were hoping that that would happen, not just for us, but also for him. Buck has won more games than any other manager in Major League history, other than Gene Mock, without making the World Series, and this might have been his last chance, so I was sad for Buck on Sunday. It had to happen. It should have happened. But, Greg, I felt bad for the man. Yeah, I felt bad for Buck, too. I still don't think it should have happened in June. I don't think it would have made much of a difference. I thought it would have been a knee-jerk reaction. All that said, it had to happen because David Stearns is here, and David Stearns wants a shot at figuring out who he wants to manage the Mets. And if the answer isn't Buck Showalter, and apparently it was not, there's no point in making Buck stick around and be something of a lame buck, if you will, uh, just so Stearns can uh, find his ultimate replacement. I just spent, oh, I don't know, 20 minutes or so in the company of Buck Showalter last week. Me and a lot of people, I happened to be sitting in on what turned out to be one of his last pregame press conferences. If you watched Buck in action, I know you sometimes you, they stream that, and you see highlights, certainly, and you see the post-game stuff. But if you see him before a game, you would never think you'd want anybody else to be manager of the Mets. Uh, there is just this sense that you know he he was manager for a life. Is just warm and charming and knowing and provocative and thoughtful. And then you know you go watch a game, and you might say, "Why is he bringing in?" Anthony Kay in this uh, situation? Why is he bringing in Reed Garrett? Why is he bringing in Grant Hartwig? He's more fallible in the dugout, I think. Maybe not in the clubhouse where I did not read any quotes anonymous or on the record that said 
I'm glad he's out of here. In so many words, his players seem to stand up for him. Certainly his players and coaches surrounded him uh, right before the game started on Sunday with a uh, an ovation, which those of us in the crowd followed along with. I think it really comes down to David Stearns, and he's got every right to say, I am the new regime. I have my own ideas about who the manager should be. And it's not theoretical. Maybe I don't want a Buck Showalter type. He had a Buck Showalter type. It was a little messy the way they shoved Buck aside. Perhaps that was unavoidable given just the timing of the Stearns announcement going to be the day after the season. This idea that Stearns was under contract to the Brewers and therefore couldn't reach out himself to Showalter. I don't know. There, there are ways of doing that. Maybe it just would have been less of a stunner. You know, again, a stunner at the end of a massively disappointing season, so maybe it wasn't that stunning. Less of a stunner if there had been actual warning, some kind of leak maybe, <laughs> that this was coming. But it was the end of, the, of a terrible season. It was going to happen. So, yeah, I feel bad. I, I don't think Buck deserved, as the baseball man he is, to go out under these circumstances. I suppose it's better that he got to come out and say, hey, everybody, I won't be back next year, as opposed to a press release going out the next day, which is usually how it goes. It already feels a long time ago, I have to tell you. Uh, even though it hasn't been more than a, a matter of days since Buck managed his last Mets game and gave his last press conference, the 2023 season already feels like a long time ago to me. I, I got to the Monday night after the season, that point where you're supposed to reflexively be missing baseball already. Uh, if, if your team isn't in the playoffs, I was like, I feel liberated. I feel so glad I don't have to watch this team anymore. And you know, it may be disingenuous to pretend that Buck had nothing to do with that team. He was he was the face of that team more than any given player. He was, it was the face of the 22 team more than any given player. We celebrated him then. They gave him a manager of the year award. He wins a lot of those. Uh, he's had a lot of managing jobs. There's, there's probably something going on there. But I was happy to have him for two years. And I was happy to have him this year. At no point did I think I need somebody else in that dugout. 24, somebody else will be in that dugout. And then we're going to find that out as the weeks go by. And I sure, I sure wish that person, whoever it is, more than two years on the job to rate more than two years on the job as well, because we've now gone through putting aside the, the fellow who had the job during the offseason and had to step aside three two-year managers. I, I guess I have a hard time categorizing Mickey Calloway, Luis Rojas, and Buck Showalter in the same way that, oh yeah, those are three guys who managed the Mets for two years on merit. I don't think so. I think Showalter was worlds above those guys, had the experience, had the, had the human touch. Not saying uh, Rojas you know, didn't have that touch with his players, but was fresh to the job and maybe did not have a chance to grow in it. Callaway, I, th I think we don't want him touching anybody, <laughs> based on what we know. He did guide a team late into September, so we'll give him that. Uh, and Rojas took over under lousy circumstances, both short time to get used to the job and then the unforeseen and unprecedented COVID season. And then Showalter gives us, you know, a year to remember, as uh, the VHS box from those many years ago said. 
And they gave us a not-so-great year, a year we'd probably like to forget, and we're already in the process of forgetting about it to as much as we can. So we move on. Empathy, if we're going to talk empathy, walk the talk, is that the phrase? I don't feel great about it. Uh, rarely do I feel great about watching somebody being told uh, you can no longer do the job you had, the job that you loved to do, uh, in, unless you're absolutely horrible at it. And I don't think Buck was. I just think it just kind of came apart this year. A tough way to go out. Rarely, though, are there grand ways to go out. We saw Tito Francona in Cleveland be celebrated upon his, he didn't use the word retirement, but it appears his retirement. You, you never know what these guys, a lot of them like, don't don't get it out of their system. You said his last chance to go to the World Series, uh, which may be the case, I mean, depending wherever he might wind up going, if he winds up going anywhere. Remember, Tony La Russa managed after going into the Hall of Fame. 20 years ago, Jack McKeon, who you would have thought was well beyond managing years, uh, led his team to the World Series championship. So you never know. But it, it, it felt like an ending for Buck. We know it was an ending for one of the many, many chapters that we are always opening and closing. Not only at the end of the day, but at the end of the year, a year like this, somebody had to go. And it was Buck. It was handled awkwardly. Steve tried to explain that during Monday's press conference, even opening the press conference with explaining that there are Major League Baseball blackout rules concerning news during the playoffs. So they had to do it then. And there were a couple of hit pieces by Joel Sherman and Mike Lupica, both of whom love Buck, as many of the members of the New York press do. It could have been handled better. And I had resigned myself to Buck coming back. I said, you know what, Stearns isn't going to want to fire a guy who was on Seinfeld, who's that beloved by the New York media in the last year of his contract. He has other things to do. I also listened back to our fifth episode. I went to the NLT archives, which are located at the Museum of Broadcasting, and our fifth episode was called Gill and Buck. And during that episode, I said, it would be nice if we had a manager who stuck around for more than two or three years. So I agree with you, Greg. Let's hope the next person is here for a while. Yeah, I'm really tired of introductory press conferences, as you know. The one good thing I, I can say about the Stearns, Showalter, non-dynamic, and I'm willing to go into the David Stearns era with a clean slate. I'm not holding this against him or anything. I'd like to think that David Stearns, who grew up in the 1990s as a New York Mets fan, maybe he just never got past the idea of being annoyed that Buck Showalter was the manager of the Yankees when they started going to the playoffs on an annual basis. And you mentioned Seinfeld. There was an article, I think it was on Defector a few months ago, about how Seinfeld morphed from this very Met-intensive show to a show that did a lot about the Yankees, kind of mirroring what it was like in New York between uh, the time Seinfeld came on the air and the time Seinfeld went off the air. And maybe Stearns is, is still that kid somewhere in him saying, I don't like that manager from the Yankees. And I don't like the fact that he had a cameo on Seinfeld. Seinfeld was about Keith Hernandez and Jerry getting into a conversation with a naked guy on the subway about what the pitching looks like this year. And the across the hall neighbor, whose name may not have been Kramer in the uh, pilot, telling him uh, what happened in tonight's game, even though uh, Jerry taped it and didn't want to know. If that's his reason, I totally understand it. <laughs> Personally, I got past that uh, about 
two seconds into the uh, show alter tenure. You know, part of his statement was, I'm, I'm so glad I got the chance to, to uh, manage a second New York team. I'd like basically forgotten that he was ever associated with the Yankees. That's in a lot of people's eyes, including Joel Sherman, probably. He's always going to be that guy. He became the Met manager to me in a way that no, nobody had been really since Terry Collins. And before that, maybe Bobby Valentine. He wore the windbreaker well. I believed it when I saw uh, Buckshow Walter. I'm not going to say in a Mets uniform because, boy, uh, except for Team Picture Day, he never wore that jersey. But I believed in that man. Now I, I got to go believe in somebody else. So you're saying Seinfeld was more about Keith Hernandez than Danny Tartable. Do you think people go up to Danny Tartable? Say, I saw you on Seinfeld. His cameo on Seinfeld is revisited constantly by Yankee fans. I'm no. thinking that. I, think I, I, I agree with you. We haven't seen, we've not seen Jerry Seinfeld or for that matter, Michael Richardson, uh, Michael Richards, excuse me. Uh, and I can't say for sure because I don't watch, uh, Watch the Yes Network uh, during the baseball season. Do, do, do you think Michael Richards is visiting with Paul O'Neill in the Yes booth <laughs> to talk about uh, you know hitting a home run or two home runs <laughs> for that kid in the hospital? It's just not not a part of the lore the way Keith and moving and Jerry not being ready to help him move and Elaine going on that date and George needing uh, needing to bring Keith in to extend his unemployment. Not part of the lore for them, as it is for us. And that's with the fact that uh, George was, what was he, assistant to the traveling secretary yes. uh, for the Yankees, So, which, which seems like quite, quite a job to walk into off the street. But as usual, we're probably getting off the subject. Back on the subject, though, I agree with you about the plethora of press conferences in the offseason. I watched yesterday, and they mentioned the wide net for the managerial search. And I said, boy, we'll get another press conference soon. They'll, they'll have they'll hand him the uniform. We've seen too many episodes of that show. The only wide net I want to see are highlights of Super John Williamson. To be honest, but oh. uh, or 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 perhaps maybe Billy Paltz would have been a better answer. The Whopper, the Whopper. But <laughs> that, that said, uh, yeah, listen, go cast a wide net. Go look at everybody. Go make the best choice possible. I don't. I'm not even. I'm not even going to throw a name out there. I'm not going to respond to the names you throw out there. To be honest, because I don't know who that person is yet. I don't know where we are in terms of baseball deciding what makes an ideal manager this offseason because we've been through the coaches who are analytically inclined we've been through players coming almost practically off the field who have a feel for younger players we've been through the idea of in some cases organization men finally getting their chance we've been through the superstar manager celebrity manager getting not so much recycled but uh you know being lured to come into the dugout we've, we've heard that all of these are good ideas all in less than the last 10 years because we've been subject to so many managerial searches and if, if you get the right manager all of that is just background material and stuff to reflect back on years later make the net as wide as possible figure out what you need i you know it, it will come down to david stearns's ideal of what a manager should be with input from everybody including steve Cohn, including billy upler including the names of people 
we're not that familiar with. I think we, we always are guilty of putting the onus on the name at the top of the masthead too often. And it's been it was brought up during the Sandy Alderson period. And I'm doing it again because I'm I'm referencing the guy who was in charge. And it's always that one guy making the decision. We know it's not. But ultimately, Stearns is going to be the guy who signs off with Cohn's blessing. Figure it out. I, uh, if I'm going to assume we're talking about David Stearns and the, the uh, David Stearns era now, uh, which is about a day old from, from where we sit. We're talking about a guy who had a lot of success building a lasting enterprise in Milwaukee. They go to the playoffs most every year. They've been to the playoffs more in the David Stearns era of Milwaukee Brewers baseball than the Mets have since Willie Randolph was managing the team. They've gone three times uh, in the last 17 years, and uh, the Mets, that is. And the Brewers have been going a lot. They're there this year. I'd be lying if I said I had any great insight into what made the Brewers a sustainable success these past several years i've paid that much attention to them i know they've had a a one manager in place who seems to get the job done that they do not have the resources uh, at hand that the mets do right now but they've made it work and they made it work in a an interesting division because the cardinals are except for this year are always there and the cubs until lately are always there in terms of contending you know, we've seen the Pirates and the Reds go up and down. So the Brewers always feel like they kind of sneak in, but they do get there. Much like uh, David Stern said, he snuck in to Shea Stadium as a kid. I'd, I'd like to go back in time and and, and watch that happen. I, I guess with uh, there, there were enough gates and exits that maybe if uh, you and your friends walked in backwards. I remember watching people sneak into Shea. I think it was at the end of 69. We walked up to get the $1.30 general admission tickets, and they were sold out. And somebody put up a ladder against the side of Shea Stadium, and people were climbing up. Not me. I did not do that. But I vividly remember people doing that ladder on the side of Shea. Perhaps that's how David Stearns did it. I'm thinking David Stern and and two friends, long overcoat, one hat. (laughs) Maybe they found a ticket stub, and uh, they somehow... uh, Flummox and Usher, and before you knew it, like uh, a Bojack Horseman. Yeah, they were they uh, <laughs> they were living the life. But uh, you know, however, he did listen his press conference. All of that stuff, all of that. Again, he didn't push it, but people asked. You know, it, re- it reminded me of when Stephen Matz was going to start a World Series game, and he was surprised that like all the questions were not about how are you going. How are you going to uh, face this Royals lineup? It was about what do you remember about watching the Mets in the World Series when you were a kid? So that's the sort of thing we're, we're all able to relate to. And it was a lot of fun hearing him talk about those things. The thing I liked when he, when he talked about growing up listening to the Mets on the radio, that he mentioned Ed Coleman as one of, yeah. one of his go-to yeah. voices. Yeah. Which nobody mentions Ed Coleman in that context, except... He's right. Ed Coleman did a lot of play-by-play in the 90s as Bob Murphy pulled back from his day-to-day schedule. He didn't travel as much. So a lot of games, including the Mets-Diamondback series uh, in the 99 playoffs in Arizona, those games, which were, you know, entailed a lot of traveling. I believe that was Cohn and Coleman. I might be wrong about that now that I'm saying that out loud, but I know for a fact 
2000, the Tokyo trip, Murph didn't make that. That was Gary and Eddie. And you had a lot of Eddie. So the, the point being here that this is this is not one of those, yeah, sure, I like the Mets type of affirmations and the, the reference points are an inch wide and an inch deep. Uh, it's nice to know that we've got somebody who understands what it's like to be a Mets fan and maybe that guides you in some small way. Well, first off, I think it made him comfortable uh, at this press conference because all these guys who've been introduced through the years, some over Zoom because that was necessary uh, during the pandemic, some in person have that feeling of, oh God, like how do I talk to, to these people in New York? And I didn't get that at all out of Stearns. He knows what it's like to be in New York. Maybe he hasn't run a baseball operation in New York, but he's been on the other side of it. And he, I'm sure he's watched with interest from Milwaukee when he's been able to. And he probably knew a lot of those people sitting there asking him questions. So, you know, it, it felt like something of a homecoming, which is you know, it's great for him. Uh, but I think it's nice for us. But again, that, that sort of thing will last until the first pitch <laughs> or the first yeah. uh, the first trade the first signing the first the first organizational move that we say what what the hell was that because listen you and i we know a lot of mets fans we don't love every single one of them <laughs> we don't wouldn't necessarily right. trust every single one of them to be the person to run the mets but it's a nice leg up and it's an, a nice feeling for the first day after a lousy season he seems happy to have Billy Epler is now person who reports to him. So we're, we're going to trust that Billy Epler is competent at whatever it is he does. And we're going to trust that maybe we won't see Steve Cohn as much, which is not necessarily a great thing or a terrible thing. But I think the fact that this is the guy who Cohn's been looking for to kind of run the operation means that he can kind of pull back do his day job, as he likes to call it, and have uh, you know, somebody who is completely versed in baseball. I mean, I imagine by now, three years in, Cone probably knows a lot more than he did when he came in. But, you know, it always kind of feels a little weird to have the owner step in. I, I think if you'd had that, that press conference opportunity in August in Kansas City, where somebody sort of had to step up and take responsibility, uh, same thing late June, I guess it was, First talking about the one after the trade deadline, but also the one where, oh my God, what a horrible June it's been. That would have, I mean, again, it's it's always nice to see the owner take responsibility. But I think that that'll be Stern's job now. Hopefully there won't be a need to call press conferences and take responsibility because hopefully things will be going great. Because you, you didn't see Steve Cohn having to do that in 2022. Steve can do what whatever Steve does. And because of the way we do it in America, as opposed to elsewhere, except for the NHL, he can collect the trophy. The time comes, we should be so lucky. This was billed to us as a new position, which is funny because somebody uh, commenting on Faith and Fear today said, how is this a new position? If this is so important, how is it that the Mets have never had a president of baseball operations before? But I guess they've had enough variations on the title going way back to George Weiss as the president of the Mets, not of baseball operations, because he he couldn't be GM because his contract that he got out of from the Yankees uh, or non-compete clause or whatever it was in those days said, you can't be a GM for anybody else for X number of years. So they said, okay, we'll make him the president. And we've seen Sandy Alderson as the president of the New York Mets, but this president of baseball operations 
is a job title that's evolved in other places, I guess. And it's more than a general manager. And it's less than, you know, running everything about the organization, maybe the way the Weiss did back in the day, although you, you had him, Donald Grant, before everybody hated him. Point is, Stearns is here, and we wish him well. We certainly do. According to Tim Britton in The Athletic on Tuesday, Stearns, while he's New York's first president of baseball operations, Tim Britton characterizes the top job as lead decision maker. And the way he put it was, this is the Mets' eighth different lead decision maker since the start of 2018. So hopefully he has the job for a long time and there's some stability. We wish him the best. David Stern's Harvard class of 2007. And one thing I'm going to have to get used to as he becomes David, the way that Alderson became Sandy and Showalter was Buck right away and Collins became Terry. During or in the aftermath of his press conference, uh, Steve Gelbs was talking with Gary Cohn and they kept referring to David. And I kept thinking, where is David Wright? David Wright's there today? That's awesome. Uh, Same way that you, you really can't refer to Keith Rad as Keith because there's only one Keith. Up to now, there's only been one, I mean, a lot of Davids, but there's been one David in, in the Mets world. I think David Wright will understand uh, if we, we throw out that first name and we're referring not to arguably the greatest position player in Mets history and our beloved captain. This is lowercase c, the captain of our ship now. So uh, the SS Stearns, uh, not the first Stearns in Mets history either, by the way, dude. Um, the SS Stearns uh, about, about, to, uh, about to take to the waters of Flushing Bay. And uh, yeah, let's go, baby. We wish smooth sailing to him. By the way, the way I look at Billy Epler's position, it's the same job. He has the same title. He's still on the org chart as general manager. There's just another layer above him between his title and Steve Cohn. He's still there. He still has the parking spot. He's showing Stearns where the coffee machine is and how to operate the copier. But he's still there. Yeah, I don't. You know what? Epler came in, and I'm sure they talked about it. And the way it's been talked about, that this was always more than a strong possibility. That this was always the goal to have a president of baseball operations. And the fact that it was never we're going to make Billy Epler president of baseball operations told him, you know, I've got a lot to do besides the coffee and the copier. Uh, you know, the, I I would imagine he will be the more hands on day to day talking to other general managers and talking to the minor league system is, you know, I'm sure that Stearns will be very involved in that too. But, you know, we've sort of been told through the years that we're not living in the era of Frank Cashin anymore, where Frank Cashin came in and ran everything. Uh, you know, you want an example of somebody who ran everything. He ran the business side. He's the guy who hired Jay Harwich, as Jay Harwich has, has mentioned a lot. So, you know, he got involved with media, got involved with everything. And, you know, it, it took a while before, if I have my history correct, he brought in Al Harrison and Joe McElvain, or at least brought them along to kind of be his deputies as uh, the, you know, Harrison on the business side, McElvain on the player development side. There's just more of those people today. Baseball seems to have convinced itself it's a lot more complicated than it used to be. I, I don't think Epler 
is going to have less to do. Uh, I think you're right. I, and I don't think it's one of those deals where, oh my God, they're bringing in somebody over me. I, I get the sense that he's he's known all along that this was the planning. Cohn said as much over the years. And now it has come to fruition. And, and if, if Epler were to leave at some point, and I hope he doesn't, not because I'm such a huge Billy Epler fan. I just, I just don't want another press conference. But if he does leave, there'll be another general manager reporting to Stearns, internal, external, I don't know. But right now, they got their team. And I hope that team puts together the team that we're going to be excited about. Because as I think back to all those press conferences, there were none last winter. It was like the only winter since Terry Collins uh, was told he would not be coming back as manager that they didn't have to have a press conference of that nature, a press conference for for Kodai Senga and for Justin Verlander and things like that. And those we embrace and or say, you know, an extension of a contract, Brandon Nimmo last winter. Uh, those are all swell. Those are those are the kind of press conferences we like. You don't want to have too many of these other kinds, lead decision makers and managers and all of that. You don't want those more than a couple of times a decade if you can help it, maybe even longer. Now, you went to Sunday's game, the last game of the season. It's your tradition to go on the last Sunday, the last day of the season. Was there a buzz about Buck's dismissal? Uh, I can say that everywhere I turned, people were talking about it. I mean, people responded to Buck every time he came out of the dugout, which was the lineup card exchange and I guess one pitching change mid-inning. And it was one more Alvarez's injury. You're right. You're right. He, uh, there was, he did come out for that. Although I think the feeling then was like, is Alvarez okay? And the trainer came out with a towel, which always interests me because I never quite sure, I guess what blood uh, is the thought. Cause they always come out with towels for things that I that don't seem to be towel intensive, but <laughs> I'm not a, pro- I'm not a professional sports trainer. You know, you get the type of people at closing day who dying to respond to everything, who are dying to thank every player who will, who start chants for any player who they think might not be there, including a uh, a late Pete Alonzo chant, uh, because he was the last batter. I'm sure if Lindor had gotten one more at bat, he would have gotten uh, some sort of recognition that way. But overall, I didn't really... Uh, really get into too many discussions with strangers in fact the people sitting next to me were from toronto and they just happened to be swinging by to see city field so i i don't know uh, how many people were up in arms or absolutely thrilled that it was buck showalter's uh, final day but you knew it i mean there may be some people who walked into the ballpark unaware because i didn't learn about it until i was on the seven between woodside and Mets wallets point by the time we sit down and there's a big thank you buck on the scoreboard you might have wondered, if, if you're not, not the kind of fan glued to this sort of thing, uh, what are we thanking Buck for exactly? Although I imagine as a baseball fan, you would figure it out pretty quickly. He got a very nice hand, very warm ovation. I didn't hear anybody yell anything like, good riddance, <laughs> get out of here. Uh, it took too long, anything like that. So I, I think for what it was worth, he left with, I hope, a good taste in his mouth about how the fans felt about him. Because I don't think it ever really, you know, you're always going to get cranks, no, no, no offense, who want to fire the manager during a lousy season and will automatically blame the manager for everything that's going wrong. But I never really had that sense of anti-Buck animus building at City Field 
stopped listening to sports talk radio, so I couldn't tell you what what the <laughs> what, what that reflects. I remember a long time ago, late in the Joe Torre era of Mets baseball, he'd come out of the dugout. He'd be a you know Torre must go chant would start up, and then it would become Albert must go, as in Steve Albert, because he wasn't much of an announcer to be honest. <laughs> you know, you you get that over time. I don't, I don't think Buck had that. So, you know, I think he he went out, head held high, and we could all hold our hold our heads high, uh, saying, you know, in so many words, too bad it had to happen that way. As I look at the standings on this Tuesday afternoon, I see that the Mets finished the regular season at 74 and 87. That doesn't add up to 162, Greg. No, it sure doesn't. I guess that uh, that one game that I happen to be at last Thursday is, unless something is announced uh, after the fact, before the first pitch of the National League playoffs, which will have taken place by the time anybody's listening to this, unless there's some late announcement, the way they sometimes change a, a hit to an error or an error to a hit, that's just going to sit there as a I don't know what exactly, in case everybody's already put the 2023 season out of their minds. And congratulations if you have. Last Thursday night, the Mets lead the Marlins in a game it was thought that they really needed. Uh, one nothing going to the ninth inning. So eight innings have been played. We all know an official ball game is five innings. They start playing the top of the ninth. The Marlins get out there and they score two runs, take the lead. I've got two runners on base. There's one out. It's raining. And it's raining too much to continue in the judgment of the umpire. And the tarp comes on the field and hilarity ensues. It felt it felt <laughs> to a certain degree. Hilarity and mystery ensued because it was raining really hard. And I can understand why you wouldn't want to play in it as much as you would also just want to get the gosh darn game over with. I was watching from the press box that night. Nobody knew what was going on. That's the funny thing. You're you're in the communications nerve center of a baseball game, and nobody knows what's going on. And everybody is trading theories back and forth about what the rule is here, because everybody remembers the if the home team is leading after the last completed inning and it's an official game, the home team wins. But if that was the case, I think the Mets would have a win by now. We understood that the pennant race implications for the Marlins who at the time had not clinched and had not had their seating confirmed. And we understood once it got to about one in the morning and they decided, no, we're not going to be playing baseball tonight. And it just kept raining for another almost 24 hours from there. We understood that they were going to come back on Monday to finish the game if needed. And it wasn't needed because the Diamondbacks decided they were not interested in winning across the weekend, but they made the playoffs too, because the new playoff system embraces 84 win teams as playoff teams. So the Mets fell behind and were not granted a win, which logically makes sense. The Marlins were ahead, but it wasn't anything that was finished. So they weren't given a win. And that makes sense. The game hasn't been finished. So you can't give either one of them a win or a loss. And you can't call it a tie exactly because it wasn't tied. And yet here we are with a game that, that it has been said the, the, statistics including david peterson pitching really well and uh, i've already forgotten who drove in the one oh rafael ortega i was hoping it was going to be the rafael ortega game too marlin fans would look back oh my god i can't believe we lost the rafael ortega game that's what kept us out of the playoffs rafael ortega's one run batted in will stand whatever it is the, the marlins did will stand but there's no win and no loss 
So it appears, like you said, the Mets finish 2023 with a, a record of 74 and 87 and something. Again, it, it is not unheard of to not have a 162 game total in your wins and losses. There have been years with unmade up rainouts. There was a blackout game in 2003, I think I mentioned when we did it happens in threes that did not get made up the end of the year. There, there used to be once in a great while a tie that we played an official game and it went as far as it could and the rains came and there was no point in making it up or, or suspending and completing it. Rules have morphed over the years, but it, it feels a little incomplete. So as somebody who keeps track of these things for his own personal one lost record, I was hoping to say, yeah, hey, a, a win for me over the Marlins. Uh, I can add to my record. Barring that, well, I guess it's a loss to the Marlins, but until somebody tells me, I have penciled it in as a dash one, as in however many wins. I think I have 22 wins, 13 losses at City Field, and one something else. I, I would call it a tie, but it doesn't feel like a tie. I know, the, again, the game happened. It was an official game. I went to 13 games this year, so that makes me 7-5-1 and one. <laughs> on the year i suppose i'd love to say eight and five i would accept it if they if they said you know what eight inning result uh, if they said you know what let's everybody saw what happened the marlins took the lead we're calling it a win for them and i was seven and six i'd say okay i understand i mean i i don't really like the pretend the last half inning didn't happen but i wonder how much of this is is gambling related there must be fine print in this and mlb and its various gambling partners there must be something to allow for this sort of thing. But saying that one team won and one team lost when the game didn't finish in any discernible way, I don't know if it's just legally more feasible for them to sit here and hope everybody forgets. And of course, we're baseball fans. We never forget stuff like this. Either way, unless it becomes a loss through some machination, and, and don't put that past the Mets for 2023, I will say this, 74 and 87, or perhaps 75 and 87 if they sneak the win in, those are unprecedented Mets final records. Uh, we've finished 74 and 88 a couple of times before, but we've never finished 74 and 87. We've never finished 75 and 87. So for one who takes all of that into account over, as I look over the grand sweep of Mets history, that's something. Uh, I liked it better when we had never finished 101 and 61 before last year. That was fun. It was a lot more fun than 74 and 87. But uh, what are you going to do? It rained. I don't understand why the game is considered to be suspended because there are no games that are suspended anymore. And I too wondered like you about the betting aspect. I put a dollar on the Mets, literally a dollar on the Mets that night. And when I woke up, I saw that the bet was voided. So maybe that's the reason, but to me, it goes reverts back to the eighth inning and it should be a Mets W not a big deal. The important part here is you were over 500 with this lousy team. That's impressive. Now all your games were at home. I went to eight road games. I was two and six, two and six, four games against Washington, two games against Detroit, one game against Colorado with only one game against the team with a winning record, Baltimore. Shout out, by the way, to Dave Metz Outsider, who joined me at the game in Colorado. One of the two wins. The Mets played a lot of lousy teams in the ones I went to. But then again, those teams played the Mets. So I was two and six. You were on the plus side. We both saw home team success. Well, first off, we, we know that they do suspend games, but they, they play them eventually. They finish them. 2021, very early in the year, 
They started a game in absolutely ridiculous conditions against the Marlins at City Field. They played into the bottom of the first, and they again in the old in the old days, Sonny, they would have just said, "Okay, never mind, it's a rainout." But they got it in their head that they should just pick up every game. So that was a game that was on April 11th that they finished on August 31st, which bugged the hell out of me because it went into various record keeping as the game of April 11th. When records were quoted, like this is what the Mets record was in, because that was the year they were in first place for a long time and then stopped being in first place by early August. This was their record. This is how many games ahead they were in July. And I'm saying, no, that never happened because this this April game that you're pretending happened in April wasn't decided until August. That's one thing when they, like again, that, that series you went to where they suspend a game in the third inning and start it, restart it the next day. It's like, fine. Or they, they had that in Boston this year. The Mets were in suspended by rain on a, on a Saturday night or Friday night, maybe. And they started restarted on Saturday. Eventually, it gets finished. You can't say a game has been suspended if you never finish it up. It's been expelled, maybe. I just don't know what to make of that. I, I wonder to what extent you know this rule that existed about the last, who was winning the last home team inning, that goes back a long ways now. Not, not that television is a new thing. It's like there's so many eyes on baseball now uh, and so many people ready to pounce. But I wonder if you tried to sell this as a win for the Mets when we all saw and groaned when the Marlins took the lead. It feels bizarre to say the Mets won. We watched the bullpen give it away. You're absolutely right. We don't know what would have happened. You know, Reed Garrett might have thrown a double play ball if they threw one more pitch. Mets might have sent two batters up in the bottom of the ninth and they would have won the game. You know, that's why you don't say it's the top. The game's decided in the top of the ninth. Avoid the bet. And I guess this is their, just their way of avoiding the game. But I can't think of a single instance, certainly in Mets history, of there is a team ahead in an official game. We're not even going to say the last completed inning, whoever was winning then, uh, once the home team batted, we're just going to say, yeah, forget it. Because this is, again, I'd, I'd, I'd be thrilled for, for the the rarity of it to say I saw a tie game. There hasn't been a tie, an official tie game in Mets baseball in 42 years, since very late in the 1981 second season. There was also one in the first half before the strike. And I think there've been eight in Mets history, including a classic that is almost never talked about by a, a Met pitcher who I'm sure almost nobody remembers, Rob Gardner. The last weekend of the 1965 season threw 15 shutout innings against the Philadelphia Phillies in the second game of a Saturday doubleheader, and he left the game. Chris Short, I believe, stayed in for the Phillies. May have gone all 18, but it was a 0-0 tie. There was some kind of bizarre Saturday night curfew in those days. So it's nothing, nothing after 18. You know what they did? They, they said it's a tie, and we're going to play a doubleheader tomorrow <laughs> to make up the game. Which And again, neither the Mets nor the Phillies in 1965 was going anywhere, but baseball will baseball, I suppose, uh, to, to use that construction. That is the most it's famous, because I just said nobody remembers it, but it's probably the, the most extreme tie the Mets have ever had. And again, games get rained out, not made up, whatever. This, though, we have a result, but we don't have a result. We're not willing to call it anything. This is something... I don't think like seems to be accounted for in the rule book. And, and again, it was very telling 
little darkly amusing to watch again so some of your your finest baseball beat writers and columnists all sit there kind of googling things and asking each other and saying no that's not it i don't think that's it because you don't see it hey listen all all we know the marlins didn't have to come back to city field i thought it would have been kind of interesting to watch the david stern's press conference take place as sort of a post-game show to those four outs but that didn't happen and they get to go to the playoffs they would be playing the phillies who were our opponents right after that including closing day and uh some somewhere in there the braves will be playing soon and we're not there you go as far as the playoffs are concerned i'm more concerned with the glendale desert dogs of the Arizona Fall League, because that's the team where Mets minor leaguers are situated. The major league playoffs this year are not of much interest to me, although I will be rooting against the Marlins, and I will be rooting against them no matter who they're playing. The Marlins don't like them. I don't like both of their fans, although there were four fans at the game uh, that you went to standing behind the dugout. I wonder if they were I don't think they have a great fan base. You can't say, oh, they're long-suffering fans. They didn't do us any favors in 2007, 2008. They didn't do us any favors last year during those last three games when we were praying that they would sweep Atlanta. And they acted like brats uh, as far as the weather and the grounds crew, that their manager would yell at the members of the grounds crew. What a punk. I can't stand the Marlins, and I, I'm rooting against them, whoever they play. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Putting aside the uh, bizarreness of 2020, and I I feel uh, comfortable putting it aside because everybody but the Mets made the playoffs that year. The Marlins' last trip to a genuine postseason was 2003, and I embraced the Marlins that fall, especially in the World Series because they were playing the Yankees. And any disdain been the you know the marlins were 10 years old at that point finishing their 11th season hadn't really built beyond uh, the marlins so it, it did interest me in both 97 and 03 when they did win the world series tons of people suddenly showed up in marlins games uh showed up uh, to those playoff games world series games uh, boat parades i think they they had both in miami and fort lauderdale celebrations hey if they win good for them uh, listen, this is a postseason that does not involve the Mets, which makes it very different. Uh, and it, it doesn't involve the Yankees, which is great. So everybody else, you know what? Clean clean slate is uh, the way I'm looking at it. I saw a picture from a workout at Target Field in advance of the Blue Jays Twins series. And it kind of dawns on me like, oh, my God, baseball still going on somewhere. And, you know, four wild card series uh, this week. Uh, however long they take. If it was us, we'd be uh, we'd have a totally different uh, view of things. But yeah, they'll play these games and somebody will win. And I'll probably watch and maybe I will d- develop a temporary allegiance. But for now, I'm just glad the Mets... No, I'm not glad the Mets aren't playing in the postseason. I'm glad the Mets are pl- done playing the regular season we just finished. Uh, loved going to closing day, always do. Loved, loved going to my 13 games even the ones that did not have a win or a loss attached to them. Great living in the baseball season. We all know how that goes. This season, as I think we said last week, had to end. It's over. It's great that it's no longer in progress. Yet we're going to talk about the 2023 Mets over the next three episodes before NLT goes into off-season mode. Starting next week with my commentary on 2023, 
the week after Greg concludes it happens in threes with his look at 2023 and one more. We have another one. Oh my there, God. There will be one more, but the third one oh will be God. on a positive I'm, one. I'm we're calling going, in we're, sick that week. I can't make it. <laughs> in the third one, we're going to talk about good things that happened in 2023. I Some to, good I things go, happened. I have to go get a new cat and adopt and pet it. <laughs> oh my God. Three weeks of this. Oh my God. Oh, you're going to love it folks. We'll make it as oh, efficient as 2023 Mets because we haven't talked about them enough. But ah! well, we were supposed to start today, but the Buck news took precedence. Oh, okay. okay. And maybe maybe there'll be more news next week, so we'll put it off another week. But I do want to offer my thoughts. You're going to conclude the 2023. Yeah, sure. The it happens in threes, and then we're going to end with good things about 2023, and then we go into postseason mode. Got that, everybody? That's the plan. And to the writer who said that National League Town provides thoughtful and sane takes. We appreciate that very much. I hope that my calling the Marlins manager a punk doesn't change your view, but we thank you for your opinion. And you don't know how wrong you are. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. We thank you for joining us today on this episode of National League Town. And yes, we'll be back next week with more. So until then, I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm in utter disbelief we're going to talk about this season for three weeks in a row. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets. By the way, we recorded this show on Tuesday. On Wednesday, the league came to its senses and changed the suspended game to a Mets win, as they should have done all along. We know that now. We didn't know it then. Copyright 2023 music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Spotify. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs>